Blog Talk Radio. Hey folks, it's Richard Diaz here, and I've got an amazing show for you today. If you guys have been frustrated with running-related injuries, well, today you're going to get some great information. I just wanted to give a shout out to a few of our sponsors, Rock Tape for one, Mio, and of course, RPM Squared. Also, next week, we have an exciting interview planned with Hunter Allen, one of the most respected pioneers of training with a power meter. This is an absolutely fascinating topic, and I believe to be the new frontier in training. You really don't want to miss this show. So let's go ahead and get on with it. Welcome to the Natural Running Network. We are brought to you by Mio, makers of the world's first strapless heart rate monitor sports watches, and MedHab, makers of RPM Squared, an innovative system of gait analysis that slips right into your running shoes. My name is Richard Diaz. I am your host. Are you a runner? Do you love to get out and challenge yourself? Running your first marathon or maybe caught the bug of obstacle racing? Well, sit tight because this is a show you just don't want to miss. I'm with Dr. Emily Splickle, podiatrist and human movement specialist. She's the founder of Evidence-Based Fitness Academy and the creator of Barefoot Training Specialists. Barefoot RX, Bear Workout. She is the barefoot queen and one of the leading experts on human movement where contact with the ground is. Just love having her on the show again because she has got my back. Welcome, Emily. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. So, Emily, as I suggested to you before we got started, I feel like I'm at battle with a lot of confused folks. Someone might look at me and say, well, dude, you're the guy that's confused. But where footwear and running is concerned and the high degree of injuries that exist in the sport of running recreationally. I just think it's really important that we try to deliver a message that will empower people to become safer, I guess is the word I'm looking for, and be able to perform and enjoy the recreation that keeps them healthy without the pitfalls of all the injuries associated with it. So the theme of this particular conversation, I hope, is going to be about running-related injuries and the association of poor mechanics that lead to these running-related injuries and the things we should think about and what we can do to curb these potential pitfalls. How's that? Sounds great. By the way, I've been, just in the last few moments, and actually yesterday too, I've been gleaning through as much of your information as I can without actually attending one of your workshops, which I should do quite frankly. Uh, yeah, that would be great. I'd love to have you attend. <laughs> um, there's been a recent um, shift. So every every January of the year, I kind of do a little, um, you know, update on my education and kind of reread a lot of the research articles. The focus this year, just based on some of the newer research, is... Um, looking at a different way at how the body loads impact forces 
and that it's much more about creating a stiffness upon foot contact and it's these isometric contractions and a lot of our potential energy lies within the fascia, the connective tissue, etc. So I actually reread all the barefoot running research and actually looked at it through a different lens. So what we'll talk about today and what my education and a lot of my blogs now focus on is actually a completely different spin on running related injuries. So, okay. which is very exciting. That means I get to be updated. I like that. Yes. Yes. You're updated. <laughs> <laughs> well, let me just share with you one of the things that I pulled from your blog that mm-hmm. I really, really like. And I want to preface this conversation by also telling you that I was at the track this morning at six o'clock with a few clients And I have lately been introducing this five-minute barefoot prep to some of the people I've been working with. Mm -hmm. And these are people that at one time or another have been plagued with some fashion of injury. And these are people that I've taught to become better midfoot runners and are operating in relatively, I don't want to say minimal, but definitely zero drop shoes of lighter construction. I'm very much a fan of ensuring that there's enough protection under the foot given the nature of unnatural environments. Mm -hmm. But when I find that people start to get into trouble, I get the shoes off of them and I find that almost immediately they start to reset. Can you kind of, before we got real wrapped up in this, can you kind of just give a broad stroke on this whole five-minute barefoot prep and kind of explain what that does for a runner? Yes. So um, that's a big thing that's behind my program and a lot of the science is that by activating the foot, and it's not for long, it's like five minutes like you said, and it's just through barefoot stimulation, textures, um, vibrations, short foot, foot to core sequencing. What you're doing is you're waking up the neural pathways of how the body actually loads impact. And that's just based on the science of the foot being the only contact point, the foot really being the gateway between how the body loads and interacts with the ground. You know, shoes are unnatural, but so are the surfaces that we run on today and walk on a lot today. So we have to kind of somehow keep a realistic approach to the natural way that the body and the nervous system is designed to work, but then counter that in our reality today. So by doing the five-minute barefoot prep, short foot, single-leg sequencing that I have on my website and blogs and articles and certification, you essentially wake up everything so that when you go into the shoes, which is a naturally slower, delayed environment, because that's what a shoe does to your nervous system, you're kind of like one step ahead of where you would be if you just stayed in your shoes and you stayed on this concrete. Um, So that's really what it is. I use it as a priming tool. Cool. Now, the other thing that I pulled down, and I'm like kind of uh, cherry picking here a little bit because this is stuff that's near and dear to my heart. And picked up this little bit that you've had on your blog about improving movement accuracy. Mm -hmm. And... I'm going to kind of read this off, and I want you to share some thoughts about it. It says, when it comes to improving movement accuracy, the biggest concept here is that our movement patterns are only as good as information we bring into our nervous system. Bad movement patterns create 
movement and accuracy. When it comes to running, actually, I kind of <laughs> took the liberty of overriding you had walking. I'm saying running because it, it pertains to this, and I'm assuming that it is appropriate. But when it comes to running and the loading of impact forces, one of the biggest contributors to movement and accuracy is, is our shoes. So in essence, when we are shod, and de- depending on the design of these shoes and how much material is placed beneath our foot, we can potentially run into these inaccuracies with contact with the ground, which potentially leads to injuries. Would that be relatively accurate? And did I, did I take too much liberty by saying running instead of walking? No, 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 not at all. Um, and that's true. Like I'm trying to get my goal with a lot of these blogs and this concept of movement inaccuracy is based on trends that I see in my office, um, kind of a whole shift in general of, you know, the running um, industry and the, the injury rates associated with it. And then just kind of our environment that we live in is everything is about your nervous system. The way that we control movement, the way that we react to surfaces, you know, the way that we load and unload, that's all your nervous system. And it's been proven time and time again that different surfaces and shoes alter the way that our nervous system responds. So from a movement accuracy or inaccuracy perspective, it makes sense. Performance is all about movement accuracy. Um, Because running is just a series of load and unload, load and unload in a very repetitive way, you have to think about the way that the nervous system is responding to that load. And we actually have to anticipate the load because it's happening so quickly that our accuracy to anticipate that load is based on the previous steps. So if you give your nervous system half of the information or kind of crappy information, your loading response is only going to be as good as that information that comes in. So 100%, that, that's a huge, that's kind of the new direction of, of where I'm putting my education is on this movement accuracy and we're only as good as the information that comes in. Cool. All right. So I set this up for myself. Because I so wholeheartedly agree with everything that you've written, it validates some of the things that I do in my coaching. Mm -hmm. I have a thing that I refer to as motor skill development drills. Mm -hmm. And the focus of these drills is really pretty unorthodox in the world of running in my mind. Because, for example... A traditional track workout where an athlete is trying to encourage improvements in their speed, sustainable speeds, they have these traditional efforts where there's a standard. For example, they may be running 400s with a standard amount of recovery, an 800, a 1600, and then they press themselves to the clock. I'm going to run X amount of distance and goal being to accomplish this task in X amount of time. And I think it's kind of a misnomer to believe that by just pressing yourself against the clock for any given distance is going to improve speed because garbage in, garbage out. If you're making errors from the gate and continuing to make errors under fatigue, you're just more likely to either, one, start to slow down, Uh, Because your body's response to this effort is your central nervous system doesn't like it. It may start to shunt some of the work you're doing. 
and then of course the the great great potential for injury. So I have people do these drills where they begin with what I consider to be an appropriate running gait, where they're focusing on the way they're making contact with the ground, the frequency in which they make contact with the ground, and all the aspects of proper posture and what have you as they run up to speed. And when they identify that they've reached peak velocity, meaning they're moving through space as quickly as they can without mistake, or they've reached this mechanical threshold where mistakes start to come on, they back off and they they need to actually walk it down, recover, and then try to reproduce this speed over and over again until eventually they start to shove this mechanical threshold further and further out. In essence, what I'm saying is, again, I want your take on this, is it's kind of the same thing. We're trying to improve movement accuracy as opposed to simply just throwing ourselves at it and hoping that one day it'll become faster. What are your thoughts on my notion here? I think it's awesome. I mean, it's basing, running is kind of a different, um, you're, you're taking running and the skill of running, you're actually making it like a skill where a lot of people, I think, make it like, hey, you know, where it's kind of an innate thing to just kind of pick up your pace from walking to running. But even walking should be a skill that is done in a proper way because it's subconscious. What you're doing is you're really bringing in that motor patterning that has to be locked into the nervous system and the cerebellum and the subconscious way that we control movement, which is what a lot of top athletes do, dancers do, performers, which I think is incredible that you're doing that. And some people may fight that because they're just like, hey, just let me run, you know? Right. (laughs) Right. uh, Well, yeah, it's funny because I have online clients. The way we work is they send me video. I want to see the way they're moving. I look at them running towards the camera, away from the camera, and then a side shot. Mm-hmm. And then I'll make some some little crib notes on the video, and I'll send it back to them, and then we go to conversation over the phone, and we review the the videos together. And then they, well, what do I do this week? I said, you go back and you fix the way you're moving. Incidentally, I have top-level athletes, elite athletes in various sports, and they keep waiting for me to give them this really – elite level training program that they're going to follow for a given week where, you know, there's improvements in intensity and there's improvements in volume. And I'm thinking, you know, until you can grab the pebble from my hand, grasshopper, we're not going to talk about how much harder you're going to throw your body at it or how much more often you're going to throw your body at it. I want to see that you've improved the way you move before we improve the amount of volume and intensity you're going to take on. And they hate me for it until they have the aha moment where they start to identify that, wow, I don't have pain anymore when I finish my workout. Mm-hmm. Again, I, I said it when I first got online with you. I need your back in this because I don't want to feel like the only crazy person in the room. Yeah, no. I, to me, it's great. and also reminds me of the movie Karate Kid. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you'll, you'll get the ones, and I think that's the other reality, that you will get the ones who will stay and hold and get it and those will be the ones who kind of rise past and then there's the other ones who they'll just always fight and then know that you know they're going to be the ones that hit the the statistic and get injured but what you're doing I think is incredible and it's taking running much more to the neurodevelopment that it requires because there's 80% of runners get hurt since the running boom 
we have to look at something. It's not the shoes. It's not the strike pattern. It's it's a deeper mechanic and neuro uh, programming or adaptation that has to be achieved. I've been quoting this uh, research study that was done at the University of Wisconsin, uh, where they they were looking at gait patterns and they and they were just essentially looking at where frequency getting, for example, as you are quite familiar that most average runners that heel strike over stride tend to operate at about 160 strides per minute and that they suggested by increasing the stride frequency by 5%, there was about a 20% reduction in injuries at the ankle, knee, and hip and that for those that were to encourage about a 10% improvement, which brought them close to 180 strides per minute, bringing their gait cycle near under center of mass when they make contact with the ground, regardless of whether it be near the heel or near the midfoot, that there was a 20% reduction in injuries relative to those three joints along the kinetic chain. And so I, I try to focus more in regard to that, getting to a much more stable environment when they're making contact with the ground, as opposed to in the old days, I was really more bent on making sure that they make that midfoot contact. Mm-hmm. But I'm starting to think that it's kind of two camps. And I, you know, just looking at some of the stuff that I've got from you on your, your sites, your blogs, your videos, is that you don't draw a ton of distinction towards whether it's more close to heel or midfoot, but more concerned about where you're actually making contact with the ground. Is that correct? Yeah, because I, I, I don't want to go down that, that route of should it be heel, should it be midfoot. You know, what I care about is that stride frequency and the stride length and that you're not overstriding based on the fact that the greater the stride length, the higher the impact forces. My goal is can I help you reduce your impact forces because you're going to fatigue at some point and you will get hurt. So, you know, let's modify that side of it versus make an argument of, you know, what is more natural and what is primitive and all of that. and so I definitely take much more that approach. Like, let's just try to shorten the stride. If you shorten your stride and that switches you to a midfoot strike, great. If not, that's fine. And let's let's work with that. What I've been doing, and I think that the difference in theory is that I'm not really bent on shortening the stride as much as I am having the stride open up behind the athlete. And so the 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 importance of this is that if you for example, hung to, and I have people use a metronome, especially early on in their training. I have them dial into 180 stride frequency. And I've seen research that indicates that because at that stride frequency, the amount of flight time that you're creating minimizes the amount of impact or, excuse me, load you have relative to gravitational forces because you're not on the ground as often as you might be had you been at 160 strides per minute. So your flight time at 180 frequency, if you're moving faster through space and your stride's opening up behind you, as long as you're landing on that stable platform every step, my theory is is that you're not going to be as compromised as you would be had your stride been ahead of you. So I'm not so much bent on whether or not, because here's what happens in a performance end is that the only way you're going to go faster is if you increase your stride frequency, if you shorten up your stride, and the cost associated with it is too great. 
So, so what I try to get is a natural rhythm where they're at least they're landing under center of mass and just not be concerned about what's happening behind them because that's already been passed. What are your thoughts about that? Is it? No, I think that that's great. And you, what you had said about the contact time is, is great. And as if listeners understand that, that the contact time and when you're on the ground, that's when you get hurt. So you increasing flight time, decreasing contact time, inevitably is going to decrease their injury risk because it's, it's on the ground that you get hurt. It's that impact. So someone who has a hard time controlling the ground or interacting with the ground, doing what you're speaking of is a perfect approach. And I, I think it's great. Cool. Whew, I thought I was going to get in trouble. No, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> so you've been traveling. I mean, I, I've been following your exploits. And now you've been traveling all over the world. What is your, what is your take on some of the other parts of the, the world that you, that you meet people and discuss these types of things? Are, are they more resistant are more receptive as opposed to we are we are here in the United States um I would say it's pretty even um you know some of the countries that I go to such as India has a very strong relationship with Reebok so they have a Reebok running squad um and Reebok sent a lot of money into India to increase running where a lot of people didn't really run because it's um such a very populated country that it wasn't, but it's something that it's free, like everybody can run, which is great. So you can then combat the rise in diabetes and and things in countries like that. So they're very open to the barefoot movement, um, running, midfoot running, barefoot running. Um, That's probably the biggest one that sticks out in my mind. And then um, Singapore and a lot of other Asian countries as well. Um, running is probably one of the most popular upcoming sports in these countries. Hmm. The last time we spoke, I tried to remain as uh, neutral in, you know, throwing particular brands under the bus in respect to the direction they were taking with design. Mm -hmm. But now it seems like it doesn't matter because almost all the brands now are throwing more and more material underneath the shoe. And I'm getting more and more resistance from people because they're finding some of their favorite athletes are being sponsored by some of these shoe companies. And again, I'm still going to try to dodge throwing anybody in particular under the bus. But the idea that they're saying, okay, we're going to maintain the zero drop because that's the way you should be making contact with the ground. But the ground being unkind, we're going to throw a whole bunch of cushion underneath the shoe and... I don't think that people really understand the gravity of what they're doing by putting on a pair of shoes that's going to inhibit that relationship with the ground. If you can kind of give a like a little bit of a synopsis of what and why you don't want to do something like that. Yeah, so um, I agree with you 100%. Uh, so what I think is the most important take-home point is that Impact or what we get from the ground is obviously impact when we strike the ground. And that impact is perceived by your body as vibration. So that vibration, the cushion in the shoe takes the vibration. But impact forces on the ground is actually what your body uses as potential energy to take the next step or to jump higher or to jump further, etc. So... 
the way that I try to bring the approach is that those vibrations are yours. You do not want the shoe to take those vibrations because that's your energy. Now your body has to make energy from somewhere and pull its way through these movements versus having it be um, like a rubber band effect or a spring effect or a load and an unload, which is the way that your body is supposed to move. So the more cushion you put in shoes, you take away that potential energy, which then makes you work harder than you should be, which means you get fatigued, you work, you overuse, and then you get injured. So um, that's much more how I try to get people to think about the cushion. Granted, if you're running on concrete, you have higher vibrations than your body is used to taking in. So you could argue, well, the shoe's going to take some of the excess uh, vibration. But the vibration is how your body knows how hard you're striking the ground. So if you take away the vibration, you think you're striking the ground not as hard. Um, so that's where that kind of comes in. of it's, it's skewing your perception as well. Other thing is that your body uses vibration to control movement from a stability perspective. So your ability to be accurate and dynamic and kind of like cat-like and agile is based on those vibrations in your detection. So you become very delayed and kind of with like blinders or like beer goggles in a sense when you have the cushion in the shoes. That's why I try to move away from it. When you think in terms of a lot of the guys that are doing trail running, where this is technical running and the terrain mm -hmm. is undulating and it varies, there's more importance to have that proprioception from the ground to make decisions and to become stable and to become more capable of contending with these variations in terrain than if you just think in terms of, well, it's going to be kind of ruddy and, and rugged and, and downhill and what have you, so... I'm going to throw this mattress underneath my foot to protect myself. That's almost kind of a misnomer, isn't it? Absolutely, 100%. I, I would think that there would be an increase in injury. But what, what's interesting that I want to add is that some people may feel more comfortable in shoes like that. I was just reading a research article right before you called. And it was talking about people who have like a, an altered sensory or sensitivity on the bottom of the foot. Say you're always in shoes and you go into that cushion shoe and that cushion shoe, you actually don't realize your potential. So it's people who start exploring and have actually tapped into that sensitivity that are like, whoa, like this is what, so it's, it's kind of like a lot of the people who argue the cushion and they feel more, more comfortable in cushion and they need that cushion really is that they've never experienced the other side and... I, I hope that makes sense because it's well, it they does. don't really know what, what, what is normal. They think they're, what they are is normal, but there's this whole other deeper sensitivity that they could tap into. Do you remember the ridiculous analogy I created for you the last time we spoke about the two automobiles? Uh, no, but you could say it again. <laughs> <laughs> well, because I'm going to give you another one. Oh, okay, great. You're going to remember when I start to tell you this. But, okay. but I, I, back in the day, I used to work for Porsche and Audi. Okay. And portionality, these cars are designed for performance. And they're talking about suspension, better performance because better suspension, better braking, blah, la 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 la. That's kind of what they're all about. And, well, Audi in particular was at ends with Volvo 
back in that day. And I'm sure they still are to some degree, but this is a while back. And so here's a commercial. They show this Volvo going across the Bonneville Salt Flats at warp speed, and there's this big concrete wall. And the Volvo smashes headlong into this concrete wall. And then you got the crash dummies. They pull it out. Because oh, look at that. You know, you survived. And then they show the Audi going headlong towards the wall and then immediately making a turn and going around the walls rather than crashing into it. Yeah. And, and the analogy is to think in terms of passive versus active safety. Passive safety being what the automobile did to try to protect you from the incident and the active safety being to avoid the incident altogether, mm-hmm. all right? So going back to what you just suggested in this perception of being in this cushioned shoe and how wonderful it feels, we used to also try to sell vehicles against, for example, a Cadillac. And if you've been in a performance vehicle where you feel the road and you feel, you know, you, you just the different sensation than being in a Cadillac where you're, you're desensitized, you don't feel anything. It's quiet. It's just, you're like in this chamber where you feel like uh, it's just so cool because, but if you turn the wheel, the whole thing washes left and right, completely unstable. And when you see what happens when the thing is in a car accident, it's really ugly too, because they actually soften up the way, I mean, I've been on the racetrack and done comparatives with this before, where they show the way these American cars would brake. And the rear end of the car lifts way, way up when you throw the brakes on because the suspension is so soft, where when you throw the brakes on in one of these performance cars, there's no butt lift up. There's just, it stops, you know, because it's a lot more stable, a lot more accurate. So bringing it back to the shoes, I think that part of it is that people get this sensation that with their foot's cradled in this, this cushion, that it's in a better place, but... I think it dampens your perception of the ground and causes you to make bad decisions and potentially the, the, the potential to make injuries are, is far greater. And that's just my backyard take of it. Yeah, no, I actually like that. I like that. And to me, that analogy makes total sense, and I get it. And I, I wish that more people would realize that because it's, you know, they're just led to believe that the shoe is, they're supposed to be in that kind of cushioned Cadillac which is not the way that your nervous system or foot was designed to move or react. Well, I could tell you that I, I can no longer wear most running shoes. Mm-hmm. I've gotten to a place where if, if there's any deviation in the heel, I'm in trouble. And I, I feel lost. I really mm-hmm. do. And incidentally, I will be, I hate to say this, it doesn't sound right when it comes out of my mouth, but I'm going to be 63 years old this year. And I had been, for the better part of my adult life, plagued with back issues. Mm-hmm. And in the last, I think it's been probably eight years ago, I don't even know how many years ago now, but eight or nine years ago that I started coming towards this whole concept of better running mechanics and understanding that there's a need to find appropriate running mechanics as opposed to what I did when I was younger, which was I was a total heel striker, overstrider, killing myself, mm-hmm. destroying my knees, destroying my back every time I would go out and run. I have not had a back issue since I've gotten to more of a zero-drop shoe. I, I literally do not have any back pain anymore, and I'm not doing anything really different. If anything, I'm less active than I was before. I'm heavier than I was before, and I have no issues with my back since I've gone to more zero-drop. That's great. Yeah, I think so, too. 
So I, I had uh, Dr. Steve Capobianco on with me a little while ago, and I really love Steve. We've we've done a bunch of stuff together. He's we've actually interacted together. He actually attended one of my uh, running certifications for coaches, mm-hmm. and. I brought Steve on because I'm very much a fan of the rock tape and the whole idea of all the benefits that this taping procedure provides. The reason I'm bringing this up is that we had a conversation, uh, it's been, I think, uh, last month we did this, where we talked about taping procedures to create this proprioception and actually help to encourage changes in the way we move relative to taping strategies. And we talked about people that um, have trouble creating dorsiflexion. If you put a strip of tape up the, the top of the foot up onto the shin, that it actually would encourage you to come into more dorsiflex position. We talked about putting tape along the lateral aspect of the kinetic chain to uh, cause people to stop crossing over. Do you do any of this? Have you ever used tape for these purposes? Uh, so I do use tape in my office, and um, I actually worked with rock tape some about bringing an awareness to the podiatry community about kinesiology taping and just the nervous system and proprioception, et cetera. So um, big fan of rock tape. They're great friends of mine. And, uh, yeah, I do integrate it. It falls perfectly in line with barefoot training and barefoot activation, barefoot science, all of that. Because you're just tapping into the nervous system and, you know, proprioceptively uh, creating readiness in your body. So I, I do do use it. I see it a little bit more on a clinical side that I'm trying to change the tension of, say, the Achilles tendon or the perineal tendons. But, yeah, no, I think it's great stuff. Let's talk about injuries for a little bit. And obviously enough, as you suggested and we talked about earlier, you know, 80% of the running community are finding that they're getting injured. And a lot of these injuries are associated with the way they're moving, not so much with the, the type of shoe that they're wearing. And so let's just suggest that, and this is something I run into a lot, people that, for example, read Born to Run, and they identify with the need to make a shift, and they want to get off their heels, and they want to learn to run more midfoot, what have you. And this transition starts to create new injuries. Transitional issue might be that, let's just say that they were heel strikers before, and now they're trying to get on their midfoot. Maybe they're too far forward, and they're not allowing their heels to touch down, so they're essentially toe running, and they're putting a lot of stress in the calf, Achilles, plantar fascia. Uh, I've used tape to assist them through this as they're trying to find their way. Do you do taping procedures for those type of injuries? I'm assuming that you see a lot of transitional injuries. What, what's your take on all of that? Do you, do you see people and say, okay, you should probably go to zero drop and then start introducing your, your barefoot techniques, or do you put them in a transitional shoe? Do you tape them? What's your process? Uh, yeah, so I, well, anyone who's transitioning from a heel strike to a midfoot strike, uh, I have them first become barefoot strong. <laughs> so they go through a, a whole foot strengthening protocol including the short foot and the foot to core while they're transitioning to a more zero drop shoe they're not running yet this is just kind of let's awaken the foot for the stress that it's going to be encountering or need to be controlling Um, and then I do have them work with a running coach 
that will video them. I video them in my office as well, but then I have them work with someone outside of the office to, to really make sure that they're getting the midfoot strike pattern. Um, as far as some of the injuries where you had said that they might be a little bit too forefoot or they're not allowing the heel to contact when they're doing a midfoot strike, that's really common that I do see that. Um, so I will use taping for that. I find that rock tape works the best for Achilles tendonitis of any foot and ankle issue that is out there. In my experience, it works the best for Achilles tendonitis. Um, so I will do the taping, but I also emphasize that, you know, they really have to let that heel contact. And I think that people forget that. So there's a whole mechanics side to it. Um, and then as they're doing that, then they're slowly increasing the mileage. Um, I will say that another common injury that I see, and I don't know if you see it uh, with your runners, is a fifth met head. It's usually the fifth met head, sometimes the styloid, but like a fifth ray issue from the loading. That's something that I see a lot, time and time again. I don't know if you ever see that. I do, and usually it's associated with overstriding and landing on the virus angle, right? Yeah, yeah, so... Uh, that's not something that's really spoken about and depending on certain foot types like some some people just have a little bit more plantar flex fifth met head relative to say the average foot they're going to be a little bit more susceptible to getting that um, and that's something that's not really spoken about as well which right. I think is and then the other end of it is the plantar fasciitis, which seems to be the, the the most difficult of all these injuries to try to overcome over time and I have a client, as a matter of fact, <laughs> I, I spoke to you about this guy before. I still work with this guy, and he, he's very stubborn. He's a good friend of mine, and he has been plagued with plantar fasciitis for going on a year now. And he's doing all these different crazy things that he's getting a lot of feedback from different people. And, you know, you never trust the people you love, right? You don't, it's like the closest people to you are the people that you don't want to listen to. Yeah, exactly. And I've been telling him over and over and over again, I've, and I've worked with him, I've taped him, I've got him trying to work on uh, doing some stretching to try to improve his dorsiflexion, and I'm trying to get him all these different things, and he keeps showing up with these beast shoes. He's, uh, he just will not put, take his shoes off, number one. I try to get him to be barefoot as, as often as possible. He won't do it. He blames the, you know, the problems with his feet because he wore cowboy boots when he was a kid. And I'm going, well, you know, you're grown up now, okay? It's time to, to make some changes, and you can make some changes, and you can start to realize some benefits, and you, you can get over this plantar fasciitis. Mm -hmm. But he's got people telling him, oh, don't ever go barefoot, and you need to keep soft material underneath your foot. And a lot of these people are medical professionals that are talking to him. I don't know what to do with them anymore. What would you say is probably the best course of action? And I know it's difficult to do this over the, the airwaves here, but you got a guy that's got a running-related injury. He's got plantar fasciitis. It's obviously associated with the way he's moving more so than any, uh, I don't want to say it's a pre-existing situation where he's trying to blame. Well, I had a motorcycle accident when I was 12, and ever since then, I don't see that at all. I think it's really got because I've seen him run well, and I've seen him run without injury. So I'm not going to let that happen. But anyway, so he's got plantar fasciitis. What would you do with a guy like that commonly? Uh, so the way that I approach plantar fasciitis, and this is for all your listeners and yourself, is 
I look at it, um, it depends on how long they've had it. So have they had it for one week and it was very specific to a run? Or have they had it for, say, over a year like this this runner of yours? Um, so I'm thinking about it first, just kind of like the duration. If someone comes in my office, they've had heel pain for one week, you know, I'll just, and I just inject them right away or I tell them what to do and I kind of get on it. Right away, a lot of those will resolve. Um, it's the ones that they've had for greater than six months that it becomes a chronic. So the way that you address this is you, you can't just think of it from a mechanic perspective anymore. You have to think about the health of the connective tissue after a year or more of inflammation and micro trauma and micro tearing and repair and this whole reparative process going on for that long that the tissue actually changes composition. What I do in patients like that is we have to do something to get that tissue to be young and healthy again. And so you have to think of it that way while you're thinking about the mechanics on the other side. So if you recommend to this guy, he might need more than just the shoes and the running mechanics and the barefoot training and whatever. He might need maybe a procedure. There's um, shockwave therapy. There's radiofrequency ablation. There's bone marrow. There's PRP. There's amniotic. You're doing something to make the connective tissue or stimulate the connective tissue to be like a rubber band again, like young and healthy. Okay. So that's half of the puzzle. And then after addressing that, then you can look a little bit more at the movement patterns, the barefoot training, the, you know, maybe this muscle is inhibiting that muscle. Maybe his his core is not stable, so that's altering the way that he contacts the ground. So those are those are usually ones one, I kind of like those ones because <laughs> they're a little bit more, you have to be a detective and you have to figure out what's going on. Why is it on just one leg and not the other? Something is happening between the foot and the core and what's happening when he contacts the ground that he's still creating that stress to the plantar fascia. And does he have like a scar tissue degeneration fasciosis now where that fasciosis has to turn into a fasciitis again and then repair itself. Okay, so that makes perfect sense to me. However, I'm thinking in terms of in the absence of doing anything that's making any sense that the potential for correction has been disrupted. In essence, what I'm saying is I don't know that his problem has gotten any worse. It's not like he's trying to fight through it because he's not been running for seven months. Mm-hmm. And... I'm thinking in terms of he's just avoided any reasonable approach to improving the situation. Now, I would think that, and you're the doctor, you correct me if you need to, but I would think that in cases where people are trying to just push through uh, an issue, an injury, some disruption in the, in the connective tissue, that they're, they're taking a bad situation and making it worse and they're bouncing back between this respite where maybe it settles down a little bit and then they they take liberty and they push on it again and then they make it worse and then they they recover a little bit. That 
exacerbation, I think, that process would be in keeping with what you're talking about. But if you're just kind of dormant and you're just like, oh, I hurt myself, so I'm not going to do anything anymore. In that case, would you think that would be more of a mechanical issue? Um, so they injure it once and then kind of pull back? Yes. Yeah. I mean, mechanics is always part of it. I just think the the reason why some people do not get better is because it's it's more than just the mechanics. They've reached now the connective tissue has changed its composition. So, and this is very particular to foot and ankle injuries because most of your elastic potential when we run and when we move lies within the foot and the ankle and the Achilles tendon and the plantar fascia and stuff. So it's it's a little bit unique to say other tendons or injuries in the body. Um, you know, yes, some people kind of get a little bit too encased in their shoes and, you know, because they're scared of getting back to something, like back to some sort of pain. So they never want to be barefoot. But to me, the ones that are just like revolving doors where it's like they feel a little bit better, then they stress it again and it goes right back to where it was. So then they go in their supportive shoes and then they start to stress and it goes right back. And then that we have to look at the mechanics. But we also have to think about the health of the connective tissue. Got it. Understand. Wow. It's just so much stuff. And so I had a conversation with a, a fellow that wrote a book on plantar fasciitis recently. Mm-hmm. He sent me the book. And one of the things that he pointed towards as being a culprit behind this stress at the plantar fascia is the uh, inability to dorsiflex the ankle and tightness in the posterior tip. What are your thoughts on that? Um. I mean, tightness in the, yeah, I mean, your plantar fascia is part of your Achilles tendon. It's the same fascial continuity. So if you cannot dorsiflex the foot, a lot of people will blame that on tight Achilles tendon, tight calves, et cetera. So they're, they're related. Um, and, yeah, so, I mean, yeah, <laughs> the way that, not that I'm wavering, but. Yeah, you don't sound like that, you're wavering. The way, yeah, I know, right? The way that. <laughs> I approach plantar fasciitis is that it's an impact injury. So does it mean that your foot is too rigid for the load, which leads to plantar fasciitis, or is your foot too flexible that you cannot create the appropriate stiffness and the impact comes in? So it's, it's two extremes. Right. Could you say that you're too rigid because you have limited ankle dorsiflexion so you cannot load properly? Yes. So it kind of goes to his first one. Um, the post-tib tightness, I would actually say more like a weakness in the post-tib would be associated with plantar fasciitis versus post-tib tightness. Weakness is much more prevalent than tightness in the post-tib. Hmm. So. so what I find a lot is that my runners come to me and they're complaining of issues at the plantar fascia heel region. When we get in and do a little deep tissue in their calf muscles, it tends to release it. There's obviously some kind of correlation between those two things. Yeah, and it's it's a little bit more. When you do that, try to play a little bit and see if you focus a little bit more on the soleus. Yes. If you get more release versus the gastroc. Got it. Yeah, that's usually what I go after. So we need to teach people how to run better. And 
performance being, you know, I've been working since last I spoke to you, I've been working a lot with obstacle racing athletes, okay. which has become a really big deal. Uh, a lot of them are professional athletes. They make a living doing this. And clearly what they're after is going faster because they've identified to win these races, it's critical that they're capable of running as opposed to just being able to go through these obstacles. And they are showing me a lot of ankle sprains. I'm seeing a lot of people spraining their ankles because of the, the undulating terrain and all the circumstances they put themselves in, having to jump off of something, jump onto something, and lots and lots of ankle sprains. So in order to develop the ankles and what have you, we go right back to your your little movement prep. Mm-hmm. And would you suggest anything in conjunction with the movement prep in order to uh, encourage uh, more mobility and stability and strength in the ankle? Yeah, no, I mean, I, that's, that's still my go-to um, treatment or strengthening program. Reason being is if you look at the fascial lines, so a lot of the rock tape that is, is done actually follows the fascial lines. So um, I don't know if you ever talk about that with your listeners with anatomy trains, Thomas Myers. I don't know if you do, Richard, but... No. Oh, okay. So um, this anatomy trains, fascial lines. There is a fascial line that runs from the bottom of the foot up into your pelvic floor and sets the deeper stabilizers in the core, which in the bottom of the foot, then there's a lateral line, which obviously runs on the outside of your leg, and that's what stabilizes your ankle. On the bottom of the foot, these two fascial lines actually cross or connect. There's a connection between these two fascial lines, which means that if you have strong feet, like strong bottom of the foot, strong intrinsics, you will actually stabilize your ankle faster because you are going through fascia, which is essentially like nerve tissue. So nothing can be as fast as, as that. That's like a, a blink of an eye, now your foot is stable. Um, that's why I use the barefoot training and the foot to core and that, that uh, movement prep that you're talking about for ankle sprains because it's so deeply integrated versus if you're thinking about an ankle sprain, I have to strengthen my lateral ankle stabilizers, I have to use a resistor band and evert my foot against resistance. That's such a local way that, and that's just not how the body moves. That's not even thinking about the nervous system and and the ground and dynamic interaction that I've shifted all of my patients away from that type of rehab. So you like this bowler's lunge? Is that a great exercise for this type of thing? Yes, 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 yes. That's getting in a little bit of transverse plane stability in the hip, which is great. If they do a short foot on the bottom of the squat or the back end of the squat before they come up into a single leg stance, that's great. I'll have them do um, the side lunge to a to that single leg. And what you can do is you can play with the speed. So they could go side lunge out to the side and then return to say the right leg in a single leg stance where they'll go out slow and come back really quick and as they're coming back quick they have to engage a very quick short foot which will reflexively kick in that lateral line and that's all frontal plane movement which is what 
ankle sprains or frontal plane. So, um, yeah, those are definitely my go-tos. Uh, now I want to tease people. Number one, I want them to be able to find you, and I want them to be able to find this barefoot prep okay. so that obviously this is very difficult to visualize. Yes. But let's do this. Let's kind of give maybe a real quick go-through in respect to the the hierarchy of the exercises in, in in sequence, and then talk about where they could find it and where they could find you for certification and education. Sure. So for the exercises, because that's probably what people are most keen on, um, that's on my YouTube channel, which is youtube.com backslash ebfafitness.com. E is in Edward, B is in boy, fafitness.com. There's a playlist that's called Run Injury Free. And if you, so if you scroll down, you'll see Run Injury Free. There's like six or seven videos. I talk about short foot, which is the foot activation. I talk about the single leg short foot sequencing, which is what, what I'll talk about real quick. Um, I talk about pelvic floor activation. What, what can they do to um, myofascially release connective tissue, et cetera. So the five-minute movement prep starts with short foot. Um, everything is done on a single leg. Uh, short foot is done for a certain amount of time, 10 seconds, activate the foot, sequence it with the pelvic floor, switch to the other side. And you're just going real quick back and forth, right leg, left leg, right leg, left leg, back forth. Then you start to do a single leg squat. On the bottom of the squat, engage short foot, connect it to the pelvic floor, exhale and bring it up. You're engaging your glutes, relax everything, bring it down into a squat, engage short foot, connect to the pelvic floor, exhale, bring it up release and you're repeating through that right side left side then there's a bowler squat that you mentioned there's a side lunge that you that I mentioned a reverse lunge then you can start to put these exercises together there's a video where I talk about barefoot jumping which is great for runners because you are reflexively contracting against the ground as you're landing so it's it's teaching more of a reflexive deceleration um, all of those videos all of those progressions are on the YouTube channel, youtube.com backslash EBFA Fitness, Run Injury Free. I have my blog, which is barefootstrongblog.com. I have the link to my book, which is called Barefoot Strong. That is called barefootstrong.com. That's easy to remember. And then my website for the certifications, including the Barefoot Training Specialist, is ebfafitness.com which stands for evidencebasedfitnessacademy.com very cool now i think it's important and it sounds ridiculous but i think it's important to say that people need to understand that what we're really talking about is essentially priming the body for more efficient movement patterns you're not suggesting hey you need to run barefoot down your paved and concrete streets. You're talking about developing a system that is more in keeping with appropriate movement patterns, right? Yes, yes. So it's it's movement prep. It is waking up the feet. It is releasing the feet every day. It's really thinking that our ability to move and do the things that we love has to or it requires an interaction with the ground. Our interaction with the ground is controlled by the foot. You put on shoes, you delay that interaction. Strip away the shoes in a stimulation perspective, 
put your shoes back on, you move better. And when you put that shoe back on, we're hoping that there's not a beauty rest mattress attached to the bottom of your foot, right? Yes, smarter footwear, smarter <laughs> footwear, minimal, zero drop, feel the ground, use the ground, become one with the ground. <laughs> Emily, you are the best. Thank you, Richard. You really are. I mean, I need you. I told you this. I need you because I fight this fight, and I don't want to be alone in it. I need, I need your back, your strength, and your knowledge. Yeah, no, I think you're doing great things, and uh, I encourage people to continue following what you're doing. If they have questions regarding the way that I'm trying to support what you're doing, they can reach out. I People email me all the time, and I make sure I answer all those emails. So That's awesome. So. Listen, I'm going to let you go. I know you've got patients coming up. I, I'm going to come find you again. Uh, we're gonna need to. So. We're gonna need to part the seas one more time. <laughs> I enjoyed these conversations. All right, listen, enjoy your day. Thank you so much. Thank you. Well, friends, it's time to bring another show to a close. Be sure and tune in to us next week. We've got a lot of great content in store for you. I want you to tell your friends to check us out. You can always find us on Facebook. Simply go search the Natural Running Network. Drop us a message. I'd love to learn more about you and the things you do. And until then, you have an amazing day.